Welcome to the Commonwealth Magazine podcast in partnership with Transit Matters. I'm your host, Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. And I'm Jim Aloisi, co-host, also a board member on Transit Matters. On the podcast today, we're joined by Beth Osborne, Senior Policy Advisor for Transportation for America. If you could tell us a little bit about the organization uh, and, and what your role is there. Absolutely. So Transportation for America is a coalition of local civic elected and business leaders that are interested in uh, having more involvement of local uh, leaders in the federal transportation program. Uh, that is because most trips are local. When we travel, we tend to travel within one community. And that is where, particularly in large urban areas, where people and freight are getting stuck. We also are uh, very active in providing technical assistance to communities across the country, both local and state level. Uh, we work on performance management issues and helping transportation agencies think beyond traditional engineering standards, like how fast do cars move, more towards outcome measures, like how transportation impacts uh, public health or providing access to employment, things like that. Uh, and we do technical assistance in things like transit-oriented development, financing for uh, transit, funding transportation in general, uh, and multimodal design techniques so that we're accommodating all travelers safely and conveniently. So, Beth, we know that you and others are here all day today. Uh, one of the things that happened this morning was a briefing at the State House for legislative leaders. Um, we talked at that point, hearing a lot about the president's uh, announced interest in a, a trillion dollars of infrastructure uh, impetus, maybe not direct spending, but inf infrastructure impact. But we also hear about a uh, congressional desire to do deep and drastic cuts across the board, including on the transportation side. What can you tell uh, us and our listeners about the outlook? and uh, What should we in particular be looking out for in the next several weeks as some of these uh, developments in, at the federal level play themselves out? Yeah, that is a, it's a very important question. It's the, the reason we're in the area today. Um, next week, the administration is going to put out what is called the, quote, skinny budget. Um, because they're a new administration, they do not have the time to put together a full budget, which for those geeks out there that want to understand the federal budget process normally takes nine to ten months to put together, and they just came into office in January. So they're going to put ba basically a brief version of the budget with top-line numbers on the street next Thursday is what, what they're telling us. And uh, that will give us a sense of how they're going to fund uh, you know, major programs, including the infrastructure programs that the president has spoken uh, so boldly about uh, putting more money into. Uh, the thing is, the, the folks that are interested in that spending package uh, are not uh, able to produce a, an actual proposal now. We don't know when an infrastructure proposal will come forward from this administration. It's likely to be, well, we're hearing summer or fall, possibly 2018, lots of different dates. But the budget will make a big statement on infrastructure programs. And the people in charge of that are not the same people who are enthusiastic about an infrastructure package. So there are a lot of rumors right now about some pretty substantial cut to infrastructure programs. Uh, I think at this point, it's important to point out that in this president's mind, infrastructure is much broader than transportation infrastructure. When he talks about infrastructure, he's talking about uh, transportation, certainly, but also stormwater. He's talking about broadband. He's talking about pipelines. He's talking about um, 
energy infrastructure. So, uh, you know, we can look for some of the clues in the various programs that fund things like that in the skinny budget. Some of the information already leaking out about uh, funding comes from the EPA. And from what we can see, the stormwater program is looking at drastic cuts. So um, that's not a really good place to start a bipartisan conversation about a, a large infrastructure spending package to pick out a handful of programs and start by cutting them. So if we're looking at um, cuts, um, which there will be a lot of opposition, I guess, to that, it was voiced in the briefing this morning um, by someone saying, well, in that case, maybe the best we can hope for is a series of continuing resolutions that have small, smaller cuts, like what we're used to seeing in the recent past. And I would say if that's the case, and if, the, if, if a huge infrastructure uh, surge or spend is potentially not actually going to appear anytime soon, in that case, at the state and local level, where should we put our advocacy efforts? Are there, are there policy changes that we should be thinking about other than just funding? Yes. I, I think there's uh, there's probably three different things. One is recognizing that what is likely to come out of this administration is financing and tax uh, changes that will encourage private dollars onto the street. Uh, that requires good local funding to take advantage of, and we can talk about that a little bit more. Uh, two is a defensive posture to make sure that programs that you all rely very heavily on are not cut back right when you need them, and making sure that your uh, congressional delegation is aware of which programs you're relying on for various priority projects. That is not always clearly understood on Capitol Hill. Uh, and third is to think about within the program, what are some policy changes that Congress might be willing to take on? I will say one caveat to that is uh, congressional members often use the excuse of the federal reauthorization bill for not taking up any policy changes between authorizations. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just passed an authorization bill last summer, and we're not due to take another one up until... Uh, 2020, I believe, so or 2021, something like that. But four years is the point. Um, as a result, there is a reluctance to take things up. However, I think there is an opportunity to make the case, uh, especially if we're talking about tax packages and things like that, to give um, communities authority to raise their own money. There might be uh, other policies that you might want changed. One of the things that comes to mind that... Uh, was not considered in the authorization bill last year is the disruption of uh, uh, shared use mobility, the the vias and lifts and bridges and, and such things of the world, uh, automated vehicles and things like that. And we might be able to convince Congress that, that it makes no sense to wait four years mm -hmm. to come up with federal policy around some of those issues, and then we might be able to tag on some other issues along with that. Well, and presumably, if one, of, if one of the whole points of this new administration and this Congress is to be generally disruptive which the, of, how, of the status quo, then let's be disruptive of the status quo, I would say, and let's think about policy changes. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that, but one thing before that, um, and you mentioned one of the tools in the toolbox that might be coming out of this administration is a desire to increase opportunities for tax credits and um, or other financing, TIFIA, maybe TIFIA on steroids. Uh, listeners, TIFIA is a, a loan program. Um, and we talked a little bit earlier about the distinction and the difference between financing and funding. They're different things. Maybe you want to elaborate on that a little bit so that 
people are aware that when we have this discussion of, of tools like TIFIA or other similar tools, that we're not really talking about net new revenue. Yes, and there are, there are several things to, to think about here. I, I think you make the, the very good point that they're all important tools and they all have their usefulness, but they are not the same thing. They're not interchangeable. So uh, traditionally the program is uh, funded by an 18.4 cent gale, uh, uh, sit, I'm gonna try that again. Traditionally it is funded by, an, the transportation program is funded by an 18.4 cent uh, gas tax that is collected at the pump and uh, is then shared with states according to a formula worked out by Congress. Um, that funding is just a pure grant from the federal government. It comes with some local match requirements. So whatever you get from the feds, you have to match it with 20% from non-federal sources. Um, that's the typical program. Over the years, we have realized that there are needs for additional funding or additional tools to be able to fund things more quickly, especially when it comes to very large projects. And programs like, as you said, TIFIA, there's another program for railroads called RIF, that is, it's a, a financing program, it's a loan program. So you come forward, you say, I want to build uh, this rail line, I have a sales tax in place to fund it, if you give me a loan, I will pay you back from the revenues of that sales tax over the next 30 years. Mm -hmm. So that is a useful tool because you don't want to wait 30 years and build up all the money in the bank to start the project because the project will go up a lot in cost. Um, but you're still paying the cost of that thing and you're paying it with interest. So it's useful for, for accelerating a project. It is not a replacement for funding. You have to come up with that locally. There are other similar types of alternatives like, um, you know, there are different types of bond initiatives or private activity bonds that allow private industry to bond much the way municipalities do. There are um, uh, public-private partnerships, which basically means there's a, a way for the public sector to rely on private financing. But again, it is financing with the notion that they will not only get paid back, but they will get paid a profit for putting the money up front. They're treated like an investor. Um, they, there's no there's no public private partnership where the private uh, private industry comes in and donates money to the public sector. There there is a cost associated with that. But again, it is a useful tool uh, if you need money now and you know you can predict your revenues well into the future, but you don't want to wait decades until you built up the uh, the amount of money needed to move forward on the project. And these are typically these tools that we're talking about. Correct me if I'm wrong are predominantly used um, on the highway uh, road side of the house, not really the transit side. At least I'm not familiar with them being used as robustly on that side. Is that the case? I, there are more projects now on the transit side using some of these tools. But you're absolutely correct that it is most frequently used for toll roads. And the model is what I'm going to do is toll this facility. I'm going to go borrow money now to pay for maybe it's um, HOV lanes or hot lanes or, or new capacity lanes that I'm going to toll and I'm going to pay back whoever has lent me the money, whether it is the federal government at a very low rate or private industry. Um, I'm going to pay them back with the tolls over the years. In public-private partnerships, a lot of times what you do is you ask 
a private company to then run it and maintain that that roadway, utilizing nothing but the tolls to pay for that maintenance. And it just takes the government out of it completely, unless, of course, the company runs into trouble. The ultimate reinsurer of that is the government, of course. Now, we are seeing... Uh, several transit agencies that, uh, particularly those that have the capacity to uh, issue a sales tax, that are taking great advantage of more innovative finance. Um, so I believe uh, Dallas has expanded their light rail using mm-hmm. uh, TIFIA because of their sales tax. Uh, Seattle, Los Angeles, uh, Denver. So there, there are a lot that now, especially if they have access to a sales tax, they're basically paying back the loan with future revenues from the sales tax. And in Denver at Union Station, they, for the first time, put together the two big federal loan programs, TIFIA and RIF, um, along with, I believe, 12 other funding programs and uh, uh, funded the rehab of Denver Union Station as a major both rail and bus hub for the area, um, and I believe it is paid back with not just a sales tax, but also with vendor fees and things like that. It, it's a, a very complex but very interesting project. This What you're saying uh, makes me think that in order to leverage some of what we are anticipating may be happening at the federal level in terms of expanding these types of tools um, that we might want to consider here in, in Massachusetts, um, readjusting or rethinking the governance structure for the T um, to enable it to do that. We've talked about um, not just that issue of, of the T's governance structure, but also enabling local communities uh, in Massachusetts um, to have discretion to impose a, a sales tax or other form of tax or fee that would be used for a very specific local purpose. And it sounds to me like we might really seriously need to consider these these changes here if we're going to adapt to what looks like will be soon the new federal reality. I would even say, even under the old reality, those localities that had some funding to start a conversation were always the most successful yes. in being able to build out not just transit, but any sort of infrastructure project. Um, but I think the reason Denver was able to cobble together all these different funding sources is they said, I will be the first in with the money. Now will everybody else come to the table? Same thing with Salt Lake, same thing with Dallas, same thing with Portland, same thing with um, uh, Seattle. And we're seeing in Indianapolis, they've stepped up and they've uh, assessed an income tax in the area, and that's going to pay for their BRT system. And with that, they're going to be able to convince other levels of government to contribute to the project. So your power, uh, the difference between your power to convene people, between when when you're begging for money versus offering to seed a project, it, it's infinite. Just one more thing about financing is some of these loan programs sound to me like what I would imagine, how I would imagine an infrastructure bank to work. And we've heard a lot at state levels talking about infrastructure banks. I think I've heard of talk about at the federal level considering something like that. Do you know if that's a possibility? Do you see states that are doing this at the state level? And how is that different than what happens now? That is a very astute question. This is a debate we have at the federal uh, level a lot. Um, and, and many people, in fact, when an infrastructure bank is proposed, one of the first things they say is we really have the elements of an infrastructure bank, at least in transportation right now. Um, uh, I think... 
theoretically, the way an infrastructure bank would work is it would have very broad eligibilities in terms of what infrastructure is covered. That is not the case with the current programs. TIFIA is for surface transportation. Um, it, it's reasonably broad, but it, it's not, I don't think you could, you couldn't use it for waterways. I don't think you could use it for pipelines. I think you, it's basically uh, transit, roads, bridges, rail. And uh, if you use the RIF program, it's only for inner city rail or freight rail, and that is it. A notion of an infrastructure bank is any sort of infrastructure project could come in and make the case that I can pay back the loan for this, uh, this project and get money. The, the holdup at the federal level has always actually been just the, the governance structure, to be honest. Um, it's not even clear which committee should consider it in Congress who's in charge of just infrastructure. In the House, it's a little more clear. In the Senate, because they have a Would it not be EPW? Okay, so. But in the Senate, highways are, and stormwater is in Environment and Public Works. Um, uh, railroads and aviation and waterways are at commerce. Transit is at banking. Who's in charge of it? A and you quickly break into a fight of, well, which, which agency should be in charge of this? And one of the things when I was at the U.S. Department of Transportation I would complain about is if you put it over at Treasury or made it independent, uh, would they have the expertise to determine whether or not that was a wise investment? Or are we just asking whether or not the, the, the funds can be paid back? Because there are some pretty awful projects that could repay the loan. And maybe as a federal government, we should consider whether or not it's a good idea. One of the things we don't consider in the current programs, and, and I've not seen considered in the infrastructure bank proposals, and I think is a huge mistake, is what we do consider in the transit programs, new starts and small starts, which is, can you demonstrate you can operate this thing that you're asking for a loan to build? And can you demonstrate that not only can you operate this asset, but the rest of your system as well prove a maintenance of effort that you're not going to shut down other parts of your system to pay for this one. And, uh, and, and I don't think it's responsible banking to not ask those questions. No one would give me a loan to extend my or to expand my house if I was going to let the rest of the house fall in a shambles. That would not be a, a wise investment for that bank. Right. Now, to get away from funding, I know the other half of, I guess, the, the funding issue is restrictions that come with federal dollars as well as maybe other powers that states have. And so if we're if we're funding constrained and we're we're expecting to maybe be that way, what on at the purely policy level or the restriction level, what are some things that we could push for? Uh, I know in Massachusetts the typical example is that the Mass Pike, which was not federal built with federal dollars, has a toll on it. But I-93 that goes north and south um, does not have tolls because of federal restrictions. So what Maybe that's an example. What are what are ways that we can um, advocate for policy changes at the federal level? Yeah, I mean, certainly the conversation of removing the restriction on tolling interstates, I, I think that is just growing. The, uh, the Obama administration proposed allowing for congestion pricing in urban areas and just pure tolling of interstates in rural areas. Um, you can toll other national highway system roads, just not the interstate. So... Uh, there's those sorts of things. There is more flexibility in terms of moving money um, that is given out through formula funds, currently mostly going to highways, maybe to other modes as well, uh, particularly inner city rail or freight rail, which you can't spend most of it on right now. Um, 
If you look at the difference between the formula grant programs and the way they're divided up and administered versus a program like the TIGER program, which is a multimodal discretionary grant program, it's only about 600000 sorry, try that again, $600 million, big difference, uh, a year, which is about 1% of the overall program. It is by far the most popular because you can go in with a highly innovative, highly multimodal project that if you weren't going to go into TIGER, you'd have to cobble together pieces of funding from a whole bunch of different programs meant to fund all the different pieces. Very hard to do. But in TIGER, you just go in and you say, what I'm trying to do here is improve safety and environmental performance or reduce congestion and improve the economy. Um, and I'm going to do that through a bunch of different modal uh, improvements. And TIGER can do that. Most of the rest of the program cannot do that. Most of the rest of the program wants you to say, I have a highway project and I will bring all my highway projects with all kinds of different objectives into this program. And that is not, it's just not a very solution-oriented approach to transportation. So I think what we needed to be thinking about doing here in Massachusetts is getting our congressional delegation thinking about these types of policy changes. I mean, on the assumption that we're not going to really under under the assumption that under this administration and this Congress, Massachusetts should not be expecting any significant increases in the flow of federal funds toward transportation, let alone other programs. Um, it may be both smart and strategic on the congress on our congressional side to be thinking about policy changes that would break down barriers, enable the state to take action in areas where it cannot now take action, like tolling the interstates and other approaches. And then finding like-minded states that might be ideologically very different from us. They may very well be red states, but they may be very much aligned in our thinking when it comes to these policy changes that could be very important to us in a time when we need to figure out how to maximize opportunities for net new revenue. Absolutely. I, and I do think you're right that it, this is not uh, a left versus right or uh, East Coast versus West Coast or Coast versus uh, Central states. I, I think that the, you would be able to put together a, a pretty sizable coalition of states that could say, just if you all can't do it, just let me do it. Give me this, this tool additionally, yeah. Right, and I'm sort of thinking that for, for, for those of us here in this state, this blue state, um, who may be bemoaning the, the federal, current federal political and ideological landscape, sometimes circumstances like this create opportunities that you don't otherwise have. So it may, may not be the optimal uh, uh, landscape from our perspective, but it might be a better landscape to be creative, to find new opportunities that could break down barriers that will reap dividends down the road. I think that's a very good point. Yeah. So I know you work at the federal level and you also work with states, mm -hmm. but I'd like to talk about regions. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if funding becomes difficult at the federal level, um, there are a lot of projects uh, that are regional in scope that maybe we would usually expect the federal government to, to help with. Um, but I'm thinking, for example, a lot of times... Um, people who are against transit and rail like to talk about Amtrak funding. Now, if Amtrak funding got cut, um, you know, the Northeast Corridor is basically the profit center of Amtrak, so I don't think it's the Northeast Corridor that gets cut. But there's other regional um, priorities around here, maybe the Knowledge Corridor ex extension, electrifying uh, the Downeaster up into Maine, um, 
and other regional, pro- like North South Rail Link, would be a regional project had re- regional benefits as well as upgrades to um, the north, uh, the northeast regional. Uh, the, sorry, the, the northeast corridor of Amtrak. In that situation, what are the ways that states could work together um, regionally to try to fund interstate transportation priorities that they're not getting the funding from the federal government for? Well, that's a that's a really tough question. And I think one of the things that's really important for people to understand in the politics of Amtrak is, you know, while uh, the the last thing that they would ever cut is funding to the Northeast Corridor because, like you said, it is their their profit center. It, it is also a high cost center because we own we own the physical infrastructure. We have to maintain it uh, along the rest of the system. It it's, belongs to freight. Uh, railroads, so we don't have to maintain that. And so, uh, it, yes, the profits come from the Northeast, the costs come from the Northeast, too. And in terms of getting things through Congress, I can count the number of senators you all have in the Northeast, and it's not enough to pass a funding bill by themselves. So if we move away from a national system, there will not be Northeast. In the long run, there will not be money for just a handful of states. There's no federal program that only funds, you know, eight states, 10 states. So I think that's one thing to really keep in mind. And, and I think those circumstances frust, frustrate people a lot. But the good news is the interest in better rail is really national. I work very closely with, uh, with folks in deep red states like uh, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, and they are fighting very, very hard to bring passenger rail back to the Gulf Coast, uh, create new passenger rail along the northern parts of those states. So I, I think the, the interest is growing and people are willing to be more creative to find ways to fund it. Um, the big breakdown these days, in really in any sort of, of transportation, is you might be able to get to help from the feds and the states in capital funds, the, the rub is figuring out how to pay to operate it. And that really is always going to be the responsibility of those regions. And uh, I think the, strategically, the extent to which those regions can encourage others to up their capital expenditures on the condition that they'll take on the ongoing uh, operating support uh, is a, is a good, good strategy and a good calculation. Um, there are... Uh, these are good areas where some of those loan programs might be useful, uh, programs like RIF, um, to, to, get, to get people organized around uh, an idea. Um, I would also say, you know, regional work, especially across state line work, is very, very challenging, especially in a formula grant world because you know, the grants go out to particular jurisdictions, usually states, and you you look inward. It's very hard with formula grants to say, well, how can I look outside of my borders? It really is those extra programs, those particularly competitive programs, that encourage people to try those, those new things. So uh, I was just on a, a, a appropriations panel yesterday with the commissioner of transportation from Maine, and he was talking about, going back to that Tiger program I mentioned, um, they never could have built some of the bridges that they have built without the Tiger program. Mm-hmm. It allowed them to collaborate and to get New Hampshire to agree to cost share with them in a way that formula programs don't really open up. Um, and it allowed them to put a rail bridge and a, a highway bridge together. So it allowed them to be much more creative and modal busting and uh, jurisdiction silo busting. 
Um, so I think that it, even if those are little programs that will only provide kind of the last gap funding, they make all the difference in the world to encourage those local regional jurisdictions uh, to get together and, and, and organize around something. That's normally the thing they're missing is that effort that, that effort to, like I said, to organize around. And if, if there's a notion that if we all work together, we can outcompete those folks you know, across the river, it's amazing what American cities will do. <laughs> Competition really brings out some pretty uh, fierce innovation and great ideas. Good. Yeah, I think, uh, I think um, one of the challenges, just to make a point on the rail side in terms of interstate, is who owns the rail, yeah. who owns the right-of-way. We're fortunate in Massachusetts, thanks to the decision-making going back to the 70s, that the Commonwealth owns most of the rail, not all of it, but most of it. And then, you know, down Easter, when you cross the border to New Hampshire and then to Maine, it's a private ownership. And so that's where I think it gets a little bit tricky. Yeah, I know of other states that had the chance 20 years ago, to do 30 years ago, to purchase up some rail and passed it up, and now they are just kicking themselves because, I mean, the the class ones were selling not, not, and the short lines were selling it for nothing, yeah. and now of course they're incredibly active lines again, and getting access is is very challenging. Sure, and if uh, Jim doesn't have another question, <coughs> then I would, um, you know, kind of let's jump into just the imaginary world for the oh, final <clears throat> wrap up here. So. We're at a, at a difficult place uh, as far as national transportation infrastructure uh, and spending on that. And I, I wonder sometimes if uh, the 20th century uh, was maybe a, bl a blip, you know, as far as the way that we fund infrastructure uh, in the country. So I'm wondering from, from you, having both state experience and uh, national level experience, what do you think would be the optimal way that, that the federal government would be involved in transportation infrastructure spending? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and and I, w I would say that while we have had very reliable funding over the last 50 years, and that that is a wonderful thing. It allows you to plan over the long term. Big, big transportation projects take years, if not decades, to plan and deliver. So having reliable funding makes a big difference. But we also did some pretty awful things in transportation, and that very reliability allowed us to make some huge mistakes that, uh, that we can't figure our way out of now. I can't tell you how many states come to us and ask for technical assistance on dealing with the economic damage that an interstate has caused by being put through the heart of a community. Um, and we don't have really the tools to properly consider their removal. So. Yes, the last 50 years have done a lot of good. They've also done some, some harm, and so we should remember that. Going forward, we should continue to have the federal government participate in funding a thoughtful asset management approach to what we've built. Um, formula funding, the notion that we'll collect taxes and we will distribute it to states for them to spend to maintain their system makes a lot of sense. That maintenance might include redesigning those systems for, for modern needs and updating um, the infrastructure to, to address the current conditions. But the notion of using formula grants for new capacity, I feel, is very wasteful. And a better model would be moving more in the directions of uh, a direction of an infrastructure bank and competition to justify the expansion. 
um, you know, you can even see this where, you know, someone is thinking about replacing a bridge. I've seen this with formula where you have a two lane road on one side of the bridge and a two lane road on the other side of the bridge and they build a four lane bridge because one day, maybe, I don't know, someone will spend $500 million to expand the road on both sides. And you have this great ride over a bridge that dead ends on both sides back into two lanes. We see that's what formula grants bring you. If instead you had to say, look, I'm going to maintain my system with, with these dependable funds and I'm going to make sure I'm replacing them at the right time, um, not waiting until the price goes up because I waited too long to replace something that's important, but really managing the asset appropriately. And if I want to add on to it, I'm going to go and make my best case to prove that the outcomes of what I'm trying to do are the best for the community, that the, the benefits exceed the costs, that I will be able to operate that new line of whatever, and uh, I will be able to maintain the rest of my system. Uh, I have a, a plan for operating my system that will include the new asset. I think we'd have much better outcomes. And that, that is the direction I'd like to see. And I would really like to see the Department of Transportation uh, I would like to see them do away with the modes. Uh, the fact that we, I really feel like a federal highway administration is just out of date. A federal transit administration is out of date. I am so glad to hear you say that. I think, I think we need to, we are, we are in an era of great transformation and innovation, and we just need to figure out how to break free of these constructs that worked very well in the 20th century. But right. That really, I don't think, respond to the current demographics, the current Modal mo mobility paradigms and preferences, and the longer we hold on to them, just because it's comfortable, or or quote unquote the way it's always been, uh, the worse we're going to be. So I think that's a terrific insight you've brought to us today. Well, and and you could see an agency that is in charge of maintenance, and then uh, uh, a new capacity agency of some kind, where you come for you come to them like an investment investors, and some will be grants and some will be loans and. And there, there can be a whole package of things that they can offer to invest in in some new capacity. But you make your best case, and you compete against your neighbor, and the people that do the best job get get the money. It just it's it seems like the the better approach. And, and like you said, I can't even define the modes anymore. Right. Right now, I can go onto my phone and I can call a car that will require me to meet at a mobile bus stop and uh, or or car stop and share that ride with a bunch of people and be dropped off in the vicinity of where I'm going. It's not door to door. Was that a car? Is that a federal highways project? Is that a federal transit type project? Where is the line now between transit and highways? And considering the fact that most transit runs on the highways, how do you decide which part is the transit part and which part is the highway part? It's just, it's 30 year old thinking and we need to, we need to get out of it. Well, hopefully we're ready to do that in Massachusetts. And um, I'd like to say thank you, Beth Osborne, from, for, from Transportation for America for joining us today. It's been Thanks for old, inviting me. It's been a very enlightening podcast. I'm Jim Aloisi. And I'm Josh Fairchild. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you at the next podcast.